Good morning, Woodsedge. I want to introduce John Sherrill, our speaker this morning. John is the pastor of Declaration Church, a Woodsedge church plant over in the Bender's Landing Grand Parkway area. For a season, John served as our worship pastor, and he's also served as the worship pastor of our church plant in Montgomery, Texas. Several years ago, I invited John to, to plant a Woods Edge church over east of the freeway in the Bender's Landing Imperial Oaks area, and John and Kelly took that risky step of planting Declaration, and it has gone so well. They've got a thriving, healthy church, reaching hundreds of people, and John has done a tremendous job as their lead pastor. We're thrilled to welcome John back as part of the Woods Edge family of churches. Would you give him a warm welcome this morning? Thank you. Thank you very much. How is everybody doing this morning? All right, that was good. I was told the 11 o'clock was the party crowd, but uh, the 9 o'clock, uh, one, good, one. Yeah, that's great. The 9 o'clock was, or whatever that time, I'm lost. This is the service three. We do two at Archer. Y'all are making me work hard. But, uh, but let me ask you one more time. Let's say it like we mean it. How are we doing this morning, anybody? What's that? You doing good? There you are. There you are. Well, I promise I'm going to try to, to keep it um, as brief as possible, but also I kind of have an 11th commandment in life, and it's thou shalt not bore. And just know, word of wisdom, there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation, but we're going to make it through today. It's going to be a great day. I want to just begin, I want to thank you so much for your heart, your vision, your generosity, if not for a great, amazing Sending church, mother church like Woods Edge, Declaration Church would not exist. So can we just thank God? Just a big shout of praise. Thank you. God has used you in such incredible ways. Um, powerful. I also just want to take a second and, and honor Pastor Jeff and Gail. So thankful for um, their influence in my life. Um, I, I, I call Pastor Jeff my pastor. Um, such a privilege to be mentored by a man of God like Jeff Wells. Can I just say that? And, um, you know, I, I know you know him and you love him, but I, I honor him because he walks in such humility. And, um, man, just by spending a few minutes with him, I feel like I've also spent time with Jesus. And so um, I just am so thankful for him. So can we honor um, Pastor Jeff? Just give him a round. Of, I know he's not here, but let's just thank God for him. He's an incredible pastor, great vision, great heart. Well, uh, for the last month or so at Declaration, we've been in a, in a series called Reach Out and Touch Faith. And I haven't said this yet, but I'll say it. If you're an 80s baby, you know the song. Yes, thank you. And we play it as our sermon bump. It's the best sermon bump music we've ever had. I think we're going to keep it. If I was a walk baseball player, it'd be my walk-up music. I love it. Um, so we've been studying through the book of James together in this Reach Out and Touch Faith series. It's an incredibly important book of the Bible. It's an incredibly important message to the church, I believe, as to all followers of Jesus. Because in it, James pastors us. He mentors us. He's encouraging us to this deeper spiritual maturity and um, deeper personal and practical holiness. Now, though sometimes James may say some things that seemingly sound hard, we can hear him as a trusted pastor and as a trusted advisor, a trusted friend, tried and true friend. And what he says are things that we need to put into practice, things that we need to put into play in order for us to grow and mature 
in our faith. In fact, the goal, the entire goal of his letter is the maturity of believers. Now, here's a list of things that James encourages the mature believer to be about. I'm just going to kind of give you the highlight reel of chapters 1 through 3 because we're going to spend some time in chapter 4 if you've got your Bible. Feel free to go to chapter 4 of the book of James, but I'm just going to get, again, highlight reel. Here's to catch you up. James says things like this. He says, count it all joy when you face trials. I know that sounds strange. It sounds difficult. Why would I be joyful in trials? But he says, count it all joy when you face trials, when you suffer, when you face circumstances, when you're in situations that are beyond your control. God is going to use those things. He's going to use all of these things for your good somehow. He's going to work all things together for good. He's always up to something good, and he's going to use them for his glory. He's going to grow you. He's going to mature you through these things. So count it joy. He says, ask for wisdom. I know right now you're probably thinking, well, I'm good, but this person next to me, they need wisdom. So no, ask for wisdom, he says, right? Ask for wisdom. When we need it, it's there for us. Ask for wisdom. He says, own your own stuff. Own your own stuff. Realize our sin is not God's fault. It's our fault. It's on us. Just as man has chosen rebellion and knowledge in the garden, so today man still chooses rebellion and knowledge over intimacy and relationship. And in that, we've got to own our own stuff. God is not an accomplice to our sin. Number four, know that God gives good gifts. He's good and everything he does is good. Look at Genesis 1 and 2. Every time he creates something, he declares it as good. And then he finally gets to the end and he says, this is very good. God gives good gifts. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift in James chapter 1 verse 17. He's the father of lights. It also says be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. He's encouraging us. We've got to be doers of the word. I'm afraid that all too often the church in America today has become information junkies. We, we, We are so heavy on information, but we lack transformation. And that's the reason why sometimes the church feels a little neutered and, and, and we're not seeing powerful visitations of God anymore because all we're doing is exalting information over habitation and transformation. We've got to be doers of the word. It's active. He says, be courteous to all, be compassionate to all. We should show no partiality to anyone, no favoritisms. We don't play that game. We've got to understand everyone is equal in the sight of God who created them and loves them passionately. We've got to remember God created each and every person on purpose and for purpose. Did you know you? God created you intentionally. You're not a cosmic accident. He did not mess this up. He created you on purpose for his purposes. For his glory. God has a unique plan for each and every one of his created beings. Because of this, in chapter 2, James instructs us in the church there's no class system when it comes to people. There's not one person that's better than the next. It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter your information, your, your, your knowledge, your education. It doesn't matter your 401k, your job status, your social status. It doesn't matter the neighborhood you live in. There's no class system when it comes to people in the church, according to James. Also, he says, there's no class system when it comes to sin. Sin, all sin, separates us from God. Though there may be different varying ramifications and consequences to sin and rebellion, simply to God, sin is sin. We try to classify it often as, you know, this sin is way worse than this other sin. But can I tell you, all sin in the sight of God is sin. It causes separation from him. It causes a breakdown in the ability for us to have intimacy in our relationship with him. And it grieves him. See, we can easily find ourselves in comparison and compromise, especially when we look across the aisle every now and then and justify our sin versus that one going, what they did was way worse than what I did. 
they're way worse off. But see, let me tell you, James is telling us and, and, that God is calling us to consistency in all things. In other words, I used this illustration a couple of weeks ago with our church. We cannot hate the homosexual agenda while we hang on to our greed and gluttony. We can't do it. Consistency, James says. He also emphasizes that we need to serve because serving is an expression of faith. Serving should originate from this overflow of gratitude to God and from a love for God. So we serve. We're active. Faith is active. It's a verb. It's moving forward. It's using your hands. It's stepping into the things that God is calling us into. It's something that we live. It's something that we do. James tells us faith without works is dead. Why? Because he says a workless faith is a worthless faith. Come on, somebody. Now, with this said, we also need to understand our works do not save us. Our activity is not a, prerequis you know, a prerequisite to our salvation. Our works don't save us, but our faith in Jesus saves us. And because of our faith in Jesus, we work, we serve. Our faith is not determined by what we do, but it is very well demonstrated by what we do. The root of our salvation is faith, but the fruit of our salvation should be works. Our activity for Christ should be the evidence of our identity in Christ. Do you see it? So today, at the end of the service, we're going to have cards for you to fill out on where you want to serve in the church. I'm just playing. We're not doing that. I'm just playing. But seriously, think about it. All throughout his letter, James is driving at our heart and our motivations. All throughout it. He warns us in chapter 3 about the tongue, a very small yet powerful muscle. And he's talking about our need to control our tongue. See, as believers of Jesus, we're to speak the language of Jesus, which is the language of life. Not the language of death. That's the language of hell. We are to speak blessings, not curses. We are not to gossip, but rather we are to edify. We are to exhort and to encourage, not discourage or divide. James, tell us that we're to walk in wisdom and that we're to be peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. Peacemakers, those willing to go in and say the hard things, have the difficult conversations, step into the conflict when need be to stand for the true, right thing. He says, as followers and imitators of Jesus, we need to walk in wisdom. With all of this in mind, James continues to encourage us to this deeper spiritual maturity in our walk with Christ. Let's look at chapter 4. Today, we examine the winnable war against worldliness. I'm going to ask you, if you will, would you just stand up in honor of the word of God as I read these first 10 verses in chapter 4 of the book of James. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, and it says this. What is the source of wars and fights among you? So the context of everything that we just talked about, what's the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Let's pray together. And when, would you do this as we pray? Would you hold your hands out as if to receive this morning? 
Because I believe that the, the good God who gives every good and perfect gift has some gifts to give you this morning. Amen? We come to worship. We come to exalt. He draws close, but man, he always blesses us. So, Father, we come before you and we humble ourselves this morning. Lord God, would you just move in power? Holy Spirit, would you be welcome? Would you come? Church, would you just welcome the Holy Spirit for a moment? Just invite him. Would you speak to us today through your word of life? Empower your word, Holy Spirit. We pray that we might apply these things and walk in holiness and not worldliness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's take a few minutes to break this down and see what the Spirit of God desires to say to us and how we need to apply this word today so not to fall into the trap of worldliness but to walk passionately in holiness. James chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to spend a little time on verse 1 this morning. He begins, he says, What's the source of wars and fights among you? What is the source of the wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? See, this is a contrast from how James ends chapter 3 and verse 18 because he says this. He says, The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Now, again, There's action to that. Those who are cultivating peace, the fruit of the Spirit, peace. You're working at it. And he says, says, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. So he exits chapter 3 with peace and begins chapter 4 with war and fights and battles. He says, what's the source of the wars and fights among you? What's the cause of the conflict? What's the cause of the angst? What's the cause of the conflict in your family, in your marriage, in your church, in your home? Can, I, can we just be real for a minute? Has anyone ever experienced the angst or anxiety of conflict, inner turmoil, or external war with family or with friends? Anybody? Would you say, yeah, that's me? Maybe you're in it right now. Has anybody ever experienced this in the church? It's tough. James says this about it. He says, what's the source of this? He says, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? See, in in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, James had told us that if we have bitter envy and selfish ambition in our heart, then we should not boast and deny the truth. He's saying, basically, if you're bitter, if you're envious, if you're selfish, if you're comparing yourself to someone else, if, if, you're, if your motivations aren't pure, if, if, if you boast and you make more of yourself downplaying and disregarding others, denying truth, he says, this is not the wisdom of God. Remember, James's purpose, again, is to call us into this deeper, more intimate and passionate walk with Jesus, a more mature, heavenward, eternal perspective. He's teaching us about godly wisdom as, as a person of peace, telling us if we lack wisdom, if you remember James 1 verse 5, if you lack wisdom, ask for it. And he will ungrudgingly and generously give it to you. He will lavish you with wisdom if you ask for it. So it's not the wisdom of Christ that leads us to walk in bitterness or envy with selfish ambition that seeks to only please the me monster. In fact, look what he says about it in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. He says, such wisdom does not come down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual. He even uses the word demonic. 
How bold to use this, this adjective to describe this type of thinking. He says bitterness, envy, selfish ambition. He goes on. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there's disorder in every evil practice. So James is saying in chapter 4, verse 1, when he comes in asking, what's the source of these wars? He's saying that the source of these wars among you are the self-centered passions within you. The source of the war among you is a direct result of the self-centered passions that rage within you. And in context, if the self-centered passions that rage within you are what you are giving yourself over to, be assured, the Bible says, most likely there is disorder in every evil practice in your life. I mean, this means that we're living according to the flesh. And our flesh must be crucified in order that, that we would live as Christ. Just as Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ that lives in me. And now this life that I live in this flesh suit, I live by faith. Everybody hold up five fingers. Faith, F-A-I-T-H, acronym, forsaking all, I trust him. And so now this life that I live, I live by faith, forsaking all. I'm just trusting him. I'm living it in the son of God because he loved me and he gave himself for me. Now listen to me. This is my life verse. And if I'm honest, man, I wrestle with this thing every day. And I have been wrestling with it every day for the last 20 years. I believe it's the crux of the maturity of walking with Jesus versus just whatever else. Denying self, dying to self. I believe it's every man's struggle and every woman's battle because until we are glorified, we are in the process of being sanctified. Come on, somebody. Amen. amen. There is a daily spiritual battle that rages. It boils down to our dreams, our wants, our agenda, um, our desires, our lust of the flesh versus God's destiny for us, God's desire for us, and God's abundant life in the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul also says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what's against the flesh. These things are opposed to one another, so you don't do what you want. you got to also keep in mind 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 in the ESV. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. This is not from the Father. It's from the world. So James is telling us the source of these wars among you is the fruit of the internal battle within you, which are caused by our self-centered, self-focused, and self-consumed passions. If our eyes are fixed on ourselves, they cannot be fixed on Jesus. Our conflict, both internal and external, is the fruit that can be traced back to the root of our inner sensual lust or pleasures. In another word, hedonism, which we can define as the playboy philosophy that makes pleasure mankind's chief end. This wages a fierce battle in the hearts of every person. So in verse 1, with one simple question James asks, and with one convicting statement, he sets us up to expose what's really going on in our hearts. And he goes on saying, that was just verse 1, by the way. <laughs> I'll go faster. Verse 2. He says, you desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. See, war is the fruit of the illicit wants and desires within. Lust brings about murder. Covetousness results in the frustration of not obtaining our pursued desires, which all leads to quarrels, fights, Factions, cliques, battles, wars, internally as well as against others. 
This is exactly what James is speaking to in verse 1. Now, when you take the last part of verse 2, you've got to look at it and attach it to verse 3. So now we'll read. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend. That word right there you could say means squandered. So it says you ask with the wrong motives so that you may squander it on your pleasures. Here's what James is saying. He's saying God will never provide for our hedonistic squandering. He's also saying this. We cannot ask God to give us something from his hand so that we can then turn and offer it at the altar of our idols. It's like asking God to bless our depravity. It's never going to happen. Obviously, when James is saying you do not have because you do not ask, he's speaking about prayer. But prayer from the motives of a pure heart, clean hands. We cannot ask God to be an accomplice to our sin by saying, God, would you please provide for this lust of my flesh? We cannot ask God, to say, God, would you please give so that, so that I can... Would you please give in to my misappropriated motivations? The correct way for believers in Jesus to have their needs met by God is by asking God out of the correct motivation of a heart. Clean hands, pure heart. James goes on, but now with a more serious tone than usual. If you look at chapters 1 through 3, every time he shifts gears or turns the corner, he always starts with like, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. Now look at verse 4 because he says, you adulterous people. You unfaithful, rebellious, stiff-necked people, right? Welcome to church, everybody. Okay. Um, <laughs> he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? He says, you, can't, you cannot give your affections to both. You can't ride that fence. It's either Jesus is Lord of all or not at all. That's what he's saying. By us giving the affections of our heart to chasing the values of this world and this culture, we're declaring our opposition to God. So James says, whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Hear it in proper context. See, we can't have it both ways. Either worldliness or godliness, either his desires or our desires. These things are in opposition of one another. If we embrace the world and its culture, we forsake Christ and his ways. Remember Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and mammon. That word mammon can be translated to wealth. That word wealth, we've got to zoom out. It's not just about money. It's saying no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and anything that you personify as your object of worship. That's what he's saying. So here's the question. Just as God... And his kindness begins to work on us. Who and what are we serving? I mean, and, and how would we know? Here's a, here's a great self-evaluation test that I put myself through often. How do I spend my money? The greatest commodity God gives me, here's the best one. How, do, how am I spending my time? I, I heard a statement the other day, and I just got to share it with you because I think it's important. Is I watch more and more of the church... Um, running, chasing after scholarship and all kind of stuff. Today in America, we spend more time teaching our children how to keep our eyes on the ball rather than keeping our eyes on Jesus. And it's not that ball is bad. Please don't hear me say this. It's just that it's a bad God. And by the way, when, when our kids' lives begin to fall apart, the baseball diamond is not going to save them. 
It's not necessarily that some of the things that we are doing are bad. We just really strongly need to begin considering who and what are we serving? Where are we giving our hearts attention? Where are we giving our hearts affection? Where ultimately are we yielding our life's allegiance? Because what we are serving declares our focus, which is either worldliness or godliness, worldliness or holiness. James goes on to say in verse 5, Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, The spirit that he made to dwell within us envies intensely. I love the Passion Translation, if you've never read any of that. I love how verse 5 reads because it says this. Does the scripture mean nothing to you that says the spirit that God breathed into our hearts is a jealous lover who intensely desires to have more and more of us. God is a jealous God for our worship. He's a jealous God for our adoration, our attention, our affection, and ultimately our allegiance. Deuteronomy 4, be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. And be care- Don't make an idol for yourselves in the shape of anything he has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Understand this, listen. Jesus that resides within you doesn't want a roommate. He doesn't want to share your life with anything else. When we surrender to him, we belong to him. As a means of application, think on this for a minute. I I think that, I believe that God is always inviting us into our next spiritual step with him. I just believe that. He's always growing us, working our heart, working on our heart. Maybe your spiritual step today is to understand that it's time to evict some things out of your heart and out of your mind and out of your life. Maybe your spiritual step today is you know it's a time to evict some things out of your your home and out of your marriage and out of your family. Because anything that is vying to occupy your attention, your affection, your adoration, and your allegiance that are not Jesus is an idol and it's keeping us from walking in holiness. It's keeping us in the war of worldliness, chained to the culture of an unsatisfying little G God who is undeserving of our affection, undeserving of our attention, undeserving of our allegiance, undeserving of our adoration, and definitely undeserving of our worship. Listen, and for those of us who struggle with this, I'm including myself, man, I get it. I have, like I said, I have wrestled and struggled because I so deeply want to walk with God. I want to walk in holiness, man. For 20 years, Galatians 2.20 has been a big old mirror staring at me all the time. Crucify with Christ. Don't live for me. Die to self. Die to flesh, man. It is a daily, sometimes moment by moment, struggle to passionately pursue Jesus. But I'm here to tell you, verse 6, man, there is good news for those those. Those like me that struggle. So if you're here, good news is coming. It gets gooder. <laughs> Verse 6 says, but he gives greater grace. Five, five fingers. Ready? Hold them up. Let me see them. Five fingers. Acronym. G-R-A-C-E. Remember faith? What is it? Forsaking all. I trust him. Here's grace. Ready? God's riches at Christ's expense. He gives an even greater grace for you. The riches of God lavished upon your life, paid for by Jesus Christ. Undeserving, didn't earn it. Not good enough, not smart enough, not rich enough, can't buy it. But his grace is even greater for you. The riches of God poured upon upon your life. 
paid for by Jesus Christ. He gives a greater grace. Just when you find yourself at the bottom, just when God's kindness convicts you of your worldliness, just when you find yourself at the end of yourself, I've got a buddy that says God's office is at the end of your rope. In his kindness and his goodness, he gives an extra greater measure of grace. Just when you come into touch with the depth of your depravity and you're staring face to face with and feeling the weight of your sin and brokenness, God comes in and covers you with an even greater measure of his kindness and grace. If there's any fighting among you, fighting and unforgiveness in your family, inner turmoil, sleeplessness, selfishness, self-centeredness, envy, anxiety, comparison, compromise, self-induced and self-inflicted battles and war. There is a greater measure of grace available to you. Amen? And here's the deal. God's desire is for more and more of us. And when we offer more and more of us to him, guess what? We receive more and more of him. So I was hanging out. I used to travel full time. I was hanging out in a minor Christian celebrity's house one day. It's pretty funny. Um, and there was this theological conversation going on with these people. And there's a lot of people there. And and one of them started talking about, I just don't understand these churches who keep calling on for the more of God, the more of God, the more. We've got all the God we're ever going to have. And, man, I sat there for a moment and just started backing up, waiting for lightning. Because I was like, time out. If I've got all the God I'm ever going to have, I am in trouble. I need God. I need God. You know why we do Church. It's not so all the pretty, sanctified, holy people. It's not so we can have a museum for all the saints. It's because we need a hospital for the broken people. Amen. We need God. If, you, if you're like me, you, you need God. Here's one. If you think you've just found the perfect church, you just ruined it. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> we need God. We need God. And he says he gives an even greater grace. Therefore, he says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Resist meaning opposes, battles against. God battles against pride. He battles against the proud. He opposes them. He opposes pride, but he pours out grace to the humble. I think about King David here. You know the story. Man after God's own heart, comes from humble means, but exalted to become a king. I mean, man, did, did this guy really mess it up? I mean, he royally blew it. Got it? Yeah. yeah, yeah Thank you. Appreciate that. Here for you. Um, here's a guy right here who, wrong place, wrong time. Lust, adultery, murder, lies, cover up. But we find him later broken before the Lord over the depth and the darkness of his sin. He was broken over just how far he had gone away from God. He was grieved over the gravity of his idolatry, over his lust, over his self-sitterness, over his envy, over his depravity before God. Psalm 51 is the most beautiful and, and profound passage of a heart that is humbled before God, getting low, desiring nothing but to be near to God again. His pride is led... His pride had led him to a horrible place. 
His lust of the flesh led him to a very dark place. His actions had grave consequences, but still his humility brought upon him a grace greater than all of his sin. It's here that James will give us ten things to do in order to walk in holiness and win the battle against worldliness. Check this out with me. He says this, verse 7. He says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So there's the first two, if you're taking notes. Submit to God, resist the devil. Instead of resisting God, submit to God. See, too many times, Jesus is our last resort rather than our first response. He's saying, submit to God. Resist the devil. He goes on in verse 8. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Did you know that the word tells us that the nearness of God is our good? Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. That's number three. Draw near to God. If you want the cure for conflict, if you want to win the winnable war against worldliness, if you want to walk in holiness, draw near to God. Submit to God. He goes on. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may be found in his holy place? Only those with clean hands and those with pure hearts. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What an encouraging message this morning at Wood's Edge, Pastor John. Thank you so much for coming. Okay. Number four through nine. Ready? Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be miserable, mourn and weep, be broken over your sin and worldliness. Be broken over your depravity before a holy God. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Rip your clothes, sackcloth, ashes. Let your joy be turned into gloom. I know this sounds super exciting and encouraging, doesn't it? James is saying this, though. He's saying, listen, he's saying, if you love God, If you love God, you must understand the gravity of your sinfulness and worldliness in comparison to his holiness and his majesty and his glory. And we must truly be broken over our brokenness. Lastly, verse 10 and number 10 of the 10-point list. He says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. Humble yourself before the Lord. Get low. Maybe we need to ask God to break us over our brokenness today. That we would become humble before him. That we would humble ourselves before him. And like David did in Psalm 51, that we would get honest and vulnerable and low before him. See, if you're like me and you battle, if if we want to win this war against worldliness, we must submit our lives to Jesus. We've got to surrender. It starts by waving the white flag. We've got to surrender. It's not I surrender some, it's I surrender all. Because the beginning of maturity in Christ is being crucified with Christ. Let me ask you some questions. Currently, who or what would you say truly captivates and holds your attention? Who or what would you say is the object of your affections? What are you adoring? Where is your allegiance? What is the spiritual step that God may be inviting you to take today? Maybe for some of you, it's it's the gift that God wants to pour out on your life of salvation. Intimate relationship with him. Listen, I grew up for a long time and I had a relationship with the church. I knew about God, but I did not know God. And maybe today you might find yourself in this place of saying, God, I, I want an intimate, personal relationship with you. The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. It's more than moralistic deism. 
See, Jesus didn't come and die to make bad people good. He came and died to make dead people live. So this morning, maybe you would humble yourself, submit your life to Jesus, and invite him to take charge. God, I lay my life down. I need forgiveness. I need freedom. I want to be a friend of God. And maybe right now you've said that in your heart. And I just want to welcome you, and welcome you into the kingdom. <laughs> because all over heaven there's a party going on right now. Because you said yes to Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's confession. You know that you've gone far from God. And God in his kindness is drawing you into repentance. And his grace is even greater for you today. Because he loves you. Your heart's being realigned. Maybe you're recommitting. Maybe you've been holding out for a long time and you've been hurt even by the church. I was hurt by the church at a young age. Can I tell you that? At 19 years old, I was asked to go find a church where I belonged. Messed me up till I was 40. Just so happens that that's what God wanted to use in church planting training to bring healing to my life. How about that? Maybe you've been hurt and you've been wounded by friendly fire. And instead of holding on to Jesus, maybe you've been holding on to a grudge and unforgiveness. And it's keeping you from destiny. The devil has you exactly where he wants you in this bitterness and in this anger. And can I tell you from personal experience, when you live in bitterness and anger, it's like drinking poison while hoping someone else will die. So let's remember, man, God does not desire to be roommates with anything or anyone, especially unforgiveness. Maybe you need to go to somebody today. And get some things right and ask for forgiveness. Maybe that's a spouse. Maybe that's a friend that one time was a close as a brother. Maybe, maybe you need a church home today. Man, this is such a great church. I love this church. I love this pastor. He'll be a great pastor to you. Whatever the spiritual step is that God is inviting you to take. I'm not asking you to respond to me or a message. Because songs and sermons don't save people. But the spirit of God... Would you yield to him today? Would you respond to God? Would you say yes to him? He desires the fullness of your heart. He wants to be so close to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Would you draw us today as we worship? Would you help us to apply this empowered word that, from your Holy Spirit? Help us to only hear the things that you have wanted us to hear. Take away the things that we need to take away and leave the rest behind. But Lord, speak to us. Move in us. Change us. Make us be more like you and less like this world. Thank you for the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead residing within us. Now give us victory in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.